Now, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the first chapter of the first book of Peter. I will be looking at verses 17 through 21. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. Hear God's Word. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Almighty, infinite Father, we thank you that we can call on you as our Father, that while no one comes to you except through your Son, Jesus Christ, it's your very Son who has made a way for us through the completed work of the shedding of his precious blood on the cross. Lord, I pray that we, your church, would receive your word today with ears that are ready to hear and hearts that seek you earnestly. Holy Spirit, we pray, illuminate the scriptures and cause us to go forth and be not only hearers of your word, but doers also. Lord, strengthen our resolve to live lives that declare that Jesus is Lord. We ask that you be glorified in our worship of you and in our fellowship together as we hear your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Peter wrote two letters during his ministry that are recorded in Scripture for us, the first and second book of Peter. And they were written by him amidst a backdrop of persecution of the early church, with rising persecution from Roman authorities at the time. First Peter was, as it says in chapter 1, verse 1, written to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And throughout much of his epistles, Peter spends a great deal of time exhorting his readers to stay firm in their faith in the midst of suffering, in the midst of this growing persecution. He encourages them to endure suffering and persecution, knowing that they are but sojourners in this world. And suffer they did, and endure persecution they would. Peter knew this was inevitable. Peter himself knew that trials would come in this life. He understood the inevitability of suffering for Christ's sake. But more importantly, Peter knew that his security, his assurance, was not in his life. It was not in his physical well-being. Rather, his assurance was in the life, death, and resurrection of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Earlier in chapter 1, he writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We, and before we even get to our section of Scripture today that we're going to look at, we observe before that in verses 13 through 16 leading up to it, that Peter exhorts his readers towards holiness, 
Now with this backdrop of real, unavoidable persecution and trials, the charge that Peter gives his readers is to be holy. And holiness will be his theme here for the rest of the first chapter. He tells his readers, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, the exhortation that Peter gives these churches and the exhortation he has for us today, for the church today, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship, is this. Live faithfully in a fallen world through seeking personal holiness. And to do that, Peter gives us here four essential truths that we're going to look at today. Four essential truths centered around our redemption that serve to strengthen believers in the pursuit of holiness. Four essential truths centered around our redemption that serve to strengthen believers, to strengthen us in the pursuit of holiness. First, that we've been ransomed as the Father's children. Second, that we've been ransomed from the futility of our former life. Third, that we've been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. And fourth, that our ransoming is part of God's sovereign plan. So we've been ransomed, for all you note-takers, we've been ransomed as the Father's children, we've been ransomed from the fertility of our former life by the precious blood of Christ as part of God's sovereign plan. So first, we've been ransomed as the Father's children. Let's look at verse 17 together. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Well, the first thing to note here is that Peter is recognizing his recipients as believers. He's writing to believers. Those who would be calling on God as their Father in heaven. God is Heavenly Father. And they have been ransomed. They've been redeemed to be His children. There's an intimate, close, tender relationship between believers and our Father. But notice He also says, well, if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And this might seem a bit counterintuitive here. He addresses these believers who are enduring hardship and persecution. And you might think he'd say something about our comfort being in Christ. Or perhaps he might mention something along the lines of God working things for the good of those who love Him. But he instead tells them to conduct themselves with fear. Well, as counterintuitive as this may seem to us, the fear here that Peter mentions is not terror. It's not hiding curled up in a corner. But rather, the fear that Peter is calling us to is the reverential awe of God as our Father. And God is a loving Father, but He is also concurrently Lord and Judge over the entirety of His creation. 
Yes, the kind of fear that Peter refers to here is fear of displeasing God our Father. And this isn't a fear that drives us from God as Father, but rather it's a fear that drives us to God as Father. Like the fear of a son not wanting to displease his father. He's not thinking every time he messes up, every time he isn't obedient, the dad's going to kick him out of the house and ostracize him from the family. No, but there still is that fear. A fear of reverence. A fear that acknowledges that the words of his father's disappointment are far more painful than being reprimanded. It's a fear that casts out all others because God is greater than our biggest fears. And Peter tells these Christians, and he's telling us today, possess this reverential fear, this reverential awe of God, our Heavenly Father. So it would motivate the way we live, so that it would motivate the way we conduct ourselves in our time of exile. And this exile that Peter speaks to was and is a spiritual one. See, the recipients of Peter's letters weren't displaced or forcibly taken out of their land by foreign powers as Israel and Judah were in the Old Testament, but his readers, these early Christians, the majority of whom were likely Gentiles, they were exiles nonetheless. Spiritual exiles. Spiritual exiles whose true home was in heaven, whose citizenship was in heaven, as the Apostle Paul echoed in Philippians 3. They have been adopted now as sons and daughters into the family of God. And they're now part of His family. They're now citizens of His kingdom. And as spiritual sojourners, Peter now calls them, his call to them now, it wasn't to revolt against Caesar and against their persecutors. It, neither was it to flee. Rather, his call to them was personal holiness. His call to them was to be holy as their heavenly Father is holy, to fear God, not Caesar, to conduct themselves in a way that demonstrated that their citizenship was in heaven and to live in such a way that reflected the will of their heavenly Father. So we've been ransomed as the Father's children, grafted into His family. And then moving on to verse 18 with me. We've been ransomed from the futility of our former life. Verse 18, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. See, Peter says to these Christians that their ways of old are futile. They're doomed from the outset. They're completely useless. And Peter's readers here, they're likely predominantly Gentile believers who understood very well what it meant to live a life of futility. Whatever they chased, worldliness, pagan religion, lusts of the flesh, well now as believers, they understand full well that these things that they formerly sought after and lusted after, these things were completely futile. They were striving after wind. And it's important that Peter brings this up because he's saying to them, don't turn back. Don't turn back to the old way of life. He's reminding them that the ransoming work, the work of their redemption, is already complete. Don't turn back. 
It's already done. They're no longer associated with this former life and should thus live in a way that reflects that. Instead, they ought to live according to their new citizenship, meaning that their allegiance is to Christ, not to the prince of this world and not to the things of this world. They've been ransomed by Christ and their affections are changed and transformed. They're no longer slaves to sin and are no longer governed by it. And their affections are then transformed to align with those of their master who has purchased them. And now what's also important is, once again, to recall that he's saying this to them in the midst of persecution in the early church. Because it's easy when it's easy. It's easy when it's easy. But the minute we're faced with hardship, with persecution, perhaps even an untimely death, becomes a completely different story. And it's said that dealing with persecution is actually quite simple. See, in many cases, it's quite simple to deal with it and make it go away. You want to rid yourself of persecution? You want to avoid it? It's simple. All you have to do is compromise. All you have to do is give a little leeway here and there. All you have to do is blend in more with the world, with what is deemed culturally acceptable. All you have to do is set yourself apart a little less and fit in a little more into what's acceptable for the world. And if you can get yourself to look just like the world does, to act like the world, to value what it values, to bend the knee to what it bends the knee to, then you'll fit right in. And not only will you have successfully escaped hardship and persecution for Christ's sake, you'll have also successfully compromised on what should have been of greatest importance to you. And this is exactly why personal holiness in the face of persecution is of paramount importance. Peter wants his readers to be prepared for persecution and trials when they come. He says later in chapter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. He's saying it's going to happen. Persecution, trials, temptations, all of it. And he reminds us here, don't turn back. Don't turn back. And to me, this brings to mind God's people during the Exodus account. See, the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt who were bound by the wills of their oppressive masters. They were trapped in futile slavery. And they required deliverance. And God rose up Moses and smote Egypt with plagues. And finally, finally the Hebrews were on their way out. They pack up and head out of Egypt, starting their journey as God led them, going before them in a going before them by day in a pillar of cloud, and by night in a pillar of fire. And he commanded Moses to have Israel encamp near the Red Sea. And we know what happened. Pharaoh pursued them. It says, All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped at the sea. And the people of Israel, when they saw Pharaoh, 
it says they feared him. And they said to Moses, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this... Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. See, Pharaoh had come with his army and had the the backs of the Israelites pinned against the sea. And the Israelites saw this situation and they already forgot. They forgot about the deliverance of God that was not only promised to them, but that God had already been putting on full display for them. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the plagues, everything. And what was Moses' reply to the people? He said, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. And Peter is saying the exact same thing here. Stand firm and don't go back. Look at the salvation of the Lord. Don't you see? The Lord has already given you the perfect Passover lamb. And will you truly turn back to Egypt? No, don't go back to Egypt. Don't even look in its direction. Instead, trust in the Lord. Turn to the sea and look in awe at what God is doing and what God is about to do. Press forward faithfully as God parts the waters. Stand firm and press forward through the way that God has made for you. Peter tells us here, this is what we need to know. He says, we've been ransomed once and for all from futility, from our enslavement to sin, just as the Israelites were rescued out of their bondage in Egypt. And he exhorts us, let that truth motivate us in godly living. Now Peter says, we ought to know this truth. That we've been ransomed. That we've been bought. And how do we come to know this? To internalize this? How do we make sure that this is at the forefront of our minds? Well, the answer to that is that we need to remind ourselves over and over and over again. This is what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves day in and day out. Lest we forget the Lord our God. Lest we see Pharaoh's army approaching and become frightened and forget. Because even as God's redeemed people, we still have a propensity to sin. A propensity to wander, to forget. Later this afternoon, we'll have the privilege to witness some of our brothers in the faith be baptized And these brothers will share with us their testimonies. And no doubt, they're going to talk about the futile things they've been ransomed from. And in doing so, they'll also remind us of God's grace given to us through the gospel. So we've been ransomed as the Father's children. We've been ransomed from the futility of our former life. And thirdly, we've been ransomed, as it says in verse 18, not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot even ransomed by Christ's precious blood now the word ransom here 
is a very important word that Peter uses. But what exactly does it mean to be ransomed? Well, to ransom means to deliver, to set free from captivity or punishment through the payment of a price. And it's important to note here, Peter has chosen his words, particularly this word, ransom, very carefully. See, his readers would have been quite familiar with slave markets in Rome and in Roman colonies where people would literally be bought with a price of silver or gold. And for slaves, for a slave to be free, he would need to earn enough as a slave to purchase himself, to ransom himself. But this was often a far-fetched idea. A slave could work like a dog every day for his entire life and never gather up enough money to purchase his own freedom. And silver and gold, these precious metals, they were incredibly valuable and expensive. And to a slave, they weren't, they weren't just valuable. Silver and gold were the unobtainable golden ticket to get them out of their shackles. But gathering silver and gold, this wasn't the only way a slave could be set free. There was also the possibility that a benefactor could pay the price of redemption to free a slave. A benefactor could purchase the freedom of a slave. And this is the exact imagery that comes to mind when Peter describes Christ ransoming us from our sin. It's impossible, impossible for us to free ourselves from the bonds of sin and its penalty. But a benefactor, Christ, has paid the ransom price on our behalf. And he did so, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but instead he paid a much, much higher price, the highest possible cost, his own precious blood. And this is perhaps the ultimate incentive to holiness. As Peter writes, we're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but are instead redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. His blood is infinitely more precious, infinitely more valuable than even the greatest earthly price. And Peter writes this essentially saying to look. Look at the price with which you were bought. Look at the unimaginably high price that God paid for you. He's saying that your heavenly Father loves you with such a love that He would not withhold that which has infinitely precious value, the life of His Son. Instead, He so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son for you so that you wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Christ is the Lamb without blemish or spot. Imagery, no doubt, evoking thoughts of and hearkening back to the system of atonement in Old Testament Israel of the redemption price that was paid. And we know what would happen in that ceremony you know, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest would be permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. And he would enter and burn incense and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat of the ark. And by doing so, the high priest would atone for his sins 
as well as the sins of the people. But we know at the same time that nobody throughout history was ever saved or redeemed by animal sacrifice. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, it says it clearly. The priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Instead, this animal sacrifice offered for atonement of sins, it pointed to the perfect work of redemption. That the sinless Son of God, the Lamb without blemish or spot, would accomplish Himself at the cross. See, in Hebrews 10 it says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But it says also, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. By the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible. But the blood of Christ, and only the blood of Christ, can wash away sin. And the blood, the blood was significant because as Leviticus 17.11 tells us, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God has given it on the altar to make atonement for souls. You see, sin is heinous to God who is perfectly holy. And a sacrifice for sin required blood. The shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood, the pouring out of blood, this depicted the pouring out of life. The pouring out of life. The cost that was paid. The ransom price. And when we look at the high high cost that was paid for our ransom, this should give us pause. This should cause us to be in reverential awe. Because the perfect, sinless Son of God poured out His blood for our sake. So no, we aren't redeemed by perishable or temporal things such as silver or gold. We are redeemed and ransomed by the very lifeblood of the Son of God, which is of supreme and infinite value. Now when Peter's readers read this, I think they understood the question posed to them here. And the question is this. Do we consider Christ's blood to be of supreme value? Do we consider Christ's blood to be of supreme value? His blood has already been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Redemption's work is completed at the cross. But when all is said and done, in practical living, do we live our lives? Do we conduct ourselves in a manner that proclaims that the blood of Christ is valuable to us? Yes, my ransom price has been paid. But is the preciousness of Christ's blood more valuable to me than the false promises that sin offers me? Let this challenge us today and cause us to be introspective. Do our lives show that we value the precious blood of Christ? Do our lives proclaim He is of infinite value to me? Spurgeon once said, If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, 
then I can no longer live in sin, but must rouse myself to love and serve Him who has redeemed me. He says, I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for His sake. How can I live in sin when He has died to save me from it? So how can we live in sin when Christ has died to save us from it? Our sin is at odds with Christ. And it cheapens the grace that God has given us through salvation. Our sin is at odds with the very one who ransomed us. And this is why we find Peter's words echoed again by the Apostle Paul here in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians when he says to believers that as those of us who have been redeemed that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within us, that we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves, but rather that we have been bought with a price. And he says, so glorify God in your body. He says, be holy. Be set apart for God. Live knowing that you have been purchased not with perishable things, but by the precious blood of Christ. So we've been ransomed as the Father's children. Ransomed from the futility of our former life. We've been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. And now the final truth Peter gives us to strengthen us in our pursuit of holiness is that our ransoming is part of God's sovereign plan. Let's continue in verse 20 of our text here. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now the sovereignty of God should be, it should be of great comfort to us. And it was certainly a great comfort to these first century Christians as they faced hardship and persecution. And it's a great comfort when we consider the believer's call to holiness. Here, Peter makes one of the most profound statements here about God's sovereignty in regards to redemption. He says, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But He was made manifest in the last times, for the sake of you. He says, before the very foundation of the world, before creation itself in eternity past, God already planned when He would send Christ. It says here that the Father foreknew the Son. But it's even more than that. It's that the Father foreknew the Son as the suffering Savior. He foreknew Him as the Redeemer. He had already planned when He would send Christ. And He had already planned how He would send Christ. And that means before we even fell, He already had a plan in place. Before the first sin, God had a plan for salvation. Before we fell, God had already prepared the price for our redemption. Our ransom price. And what's more is, Peter tells his readers 
not only has God's sovereign hand been moving since eternity passed and before time itself began, he says, Jesus Christ was made manifest in these last times for their sake. And as believers, that means for our sake. And what he's saying here is that we have an incredible privilege and that we are currently living in the last times. And that privilege is that the complete picture of God's sovereign plan of redemption has been revealed to us in the saving work of Christ. The prophets throughout the Old Testament spoke of God's grace and salvation, but not everything was revealed to them. They didn't know exactly when their prophecies would come to fruition or when they would be realized. But we have the privilege of access to the gospel, for God has made Christ manifest in these times. Christ has been made manifest in these last times for us. We have the privilege of seeing the complete picture, the full picture. No longer do we look at a type or a sign of atonement. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin, remember? But Christ has fulfilled. He has Himself fulfilled the requirements of the law. He bled and died on the cross and rose again. And on this side of the cross, the work is completely done. As our Lord said, it is finished. See, in verse 12, Peter reminds us when he talks about the prophets in the Old Testament that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. Yes, Christ has been made manifest in the last times for our sake. And as believers, we are simply the beneficiaries of Christ, our benefactor. Jesus entered into this sinful world, born as a man, and he came for the purpose of saving his elect, saving those who would place their trust in him. And the appointment of Christ as Redeemer and his manifestation, his appearance in the last times, these all culminate in serving God's plan of redemption. The purpose of these things is to redeem believers. See, Peter tells his readers, these things are happening. All of these things are happening for their sakes. And as we said earlier, it's for these sinners that God did not withhold even his only begotten Son, but gave him up as a propitiation for sins to redeem sinful men and women who are helpless apart from him. And Peter goes on, follow with me in verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Well, Peter goes far beyond pointing out the immense privilege his readers have, and he adds that it's through him, through Christ, that they're even believers in the first place. And why do we believe in God? What is the thrust of the Gospels? It is that Christ died to ransom sinners, and God raised him from the dead. That Christ died to ransom sinners, and God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is central 
to our faith. And it confirms God's absolute fulfillment of His own promises. Peter himself said in Acts 2, at his sermon in Pentecost, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was raised from the grave and glorified, and he was exalted by being given the name that is above everything God has made. And finally, Peter provides us with what end these truths are aimed at. That through Christ, we're believers in God, who raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory. So our faith and hope are in God. And the implication here, brothers and sisters, is that as we looked to Christ's life, to his death, to his resurrection, to the gospel, that we would understand that we have been given complete assurance that we also will be raised, that God will preserve us. The basis of faith itself is the resurrection of Jesus. And it's the promise that the risen Redeemer has made to us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is with us to the end of the age. He will glorify who He justifies and sanctifies. That will carry us through difficulties and empower us towards godly living. It will empower us towards holiness. And we're also reminded that our hope is not in this world, but in our Lord. We're reminded, just as these early church members were, as they stared hardship and persecution and even death in the face, to be unafraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, and to instead focus on pleasing our Father in heaven. See, our faith and hope here are in a God who loves us greatly. And Peter reminds us here that the God, the Heavenly Father, whom we are called to fear and holy reverence as judge, He is also the one true God who we trust in as our Savior. He's the one who planned our redemption from eternity past, sending His own Son for our sake. He's the one who raised Christ from the dead and glorified Him. And now, He's the one in whom we are to place hope and faith and trust. The Father who we stand before in reverential awe is the same God whom we trust with all of our hearts. The same God who has planned out salvation for us and who has done all that is required for our ransom and for our sake. This is the truth that Peter makes plain to us here in this section of Scripture. And he does so that we would be motivated toward godly living as we sojourn in spiritual exile. So he's reminding us today, we've been ransomed as the Father's children 
from the futility of our former life by the precious blood of Christ as part of God's sovereign plan. And for believers, the takeaway is simple. Just before our passage here, in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, he writes, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And Peter goes on to list out these truths about our redemption and tells us, look, look at the price. Look at the price by which you've been purchased. Look at what you're saved from. And look at what you've been saved to. He's saying, remember the gospel in all that you do. Remember the Lord your God. Let truths pertaining to your redemption be ever fueling you, motivating you to holiness, motivating you to desire to be molded more and more into the image of God's precious Son instead of the whims and lusts of the world and the flesh. See, the ransomed one, the ransomed one does not live the captive's life. The ransomed one lives the ransomed life. And he is enabled to do so by the saving, sanctifying grace of God. Sinclair Ferguson writes in his book, Devoted to God, the motivation, energy, and drive for holiness are all found in the reality and power of God's grace in Christ. So if I'm to make any progress in sanctification, the place where I must always begin is the gospel of the mercy of God to me in Christ Jesus. Now, for those who are with us today who have not come to know Jesus, maybe you're here for our baptism service to see a friend or family member be baptized. Maybe you've been in and out of pillar for some, for, for some time or, or at some other church for some time. Having heard a sermon here or there, or maybe you've been listening to God's Word being preached into your life for years. I plead with you to consider the incredible love that God has for you. That although due to our sin, we all deserve eternal separation from God, apart from Him in eternal condemnation, God Himself has provided a way. He has provided a benefactor to ransom us. In our depravity, our sin has caused for us an infinite separation from God, which requires the infinitely precious blood of Christ to bridge. But God has provided the spotless Lamb to atone for us. He's provided His only begotten Son to live a perfect sinless life, to take our place on the cross, to bear our sins and to face the death that we deserve, to pour out His blood as a ransom for us. Now we cannot save ourselves. We need a benefactor. We need a Savior. We need Christ. And as it says in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And also consider that Christ conquered death, rising on the third day in victory, confirming His dominion over death and the acceptance of His atoning work on the cross for us, for our sakes. I implore you, don't neglect such a Savior. 
I plead with you, don't turn away from such a loving Father. Rather, come as you are to the Father, knowing that the sinless Son has made a way, and place your faith and trust in Him today. Brothers and sisters, may we all prize the gospel, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and so live in a way that honors and glorifies Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you did not withhold your own son, but gave him as a ransom for us. Thank you for the cross and for the great cost that was paid, for the precious blood of Christ and for the work of salvation that has already been accomplished. Lord, we thank you for your word and for speaking truth to our hearts through it. We pray that we would leave here refreshed and seeking to honor and glorify you in the way that we live our lives, with reverential awe and fear, wanting to please our Father in heaven. We pray that these essential truths that we find in your word would motivate us to right living, that we would surrender and yield anything that is preventing us from running to you as your beloved children and that we would live lives that boldly proclaim Christ's infinite worth. Lord, I ask, equip us and strengthen us to live lives that are set apart for you, determined to honor and glorify you, no matter what the circumstance. We thank you for the time of worship and ask that you be glorified in our worship of you. And we pray these things by your Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.